Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. Last week, we began a two-part study on one of the most important themes in Jeremiah. It was the message that judgment is coming, or more specifically in his day, it was the announcement that Babylon is coming. And I want us to remember that this is not just an important message in his day. This message was also extremely unpopular in Jeremiah's day. Now, perhaps because it is election season here in our state, in our country, I've been seeing a lot of political ads lately. This has reminded me that Jeremiah would have been a terrible politician. Okay. I feel like we are hearing almost every day about new polls coming out. We hear a lot about approval and disapproval ratings. Okay. Imagine if we could have taken a poll about Jeremiah <clears throat> in his own day. How do you think he would have done? I'm pretty sure he would have had a very low approval rating. Okay. He's just not what we are looking for in a prophet. Okay. And think about this. Okay. What if we could have asked people in his day about which message they most disapproved of in his day? I'm pretty sure that the message, Babylon is coming to destroy us, was the least popular message that he preached. And, and he knew that. It's not like Jeremiah didn't know what people thought or what they would think about this message. In fact, he did not like this message either, but he kept preaching it anyway, year after year, in spite of how unpopular it was. And why do you suppose that he did that? He knew no one liked it. A lot of the other prophets in his day, they preached whatever the people wanted to hear. He just kept preaching this message. Babylon is on the way. Why did he do that? He, you think, well, he preached that because he knew it was true. I mean, that was one of the reasons. He preached this because he knew that his people needed to hear it and that they were not going to hear it from anybody else. No one else was going to tell them this message. And ultimately, he preached this year after year because God told him to do it. He did what he did in obedience to God, and he did it for the good of his people, even if they didn't think it was for their good. I mean, after all, if no one ever warned them of the coming judgment, they would be much less likely to do what? To repent, to turn to the Lord for salvation. If, if no one was out there sounding the alarm, why would anyone flee for safety? If the only message everyone was hearing all the time was, it's all good, it's all good, when it clearly was not all good, that's not good. And I'm starting with this just to get us thinking about how that might relate to our own day. Because we all know the message that judgment is coming. When's the last time you told somebody that? Okay. That message continues to be extremely unpopular in our day. I mean, that is certainly the case outside the church. That's not surprising. But I have little doubt that this message that there is a future judgment drawing near, has fallen on hard times in the church as well. And that is in spite of the fact that it is really clear in the New Testament that this is going to happen, that there is still in front of us a coming day of wrath. There is coming a future day of fierce and final judgment. 
Any person who reads the Bible knows that because it's all over the place. It's hard to find books in the Bible that don't talk about that. And this is just one of the many reasons it's good for us to be in Jeremiah because it's helpful for us who live in a day that is very similar on this score to be able to hear what he said and to just watch him persevere in preaching a very unpopular message. Now, before we get into the main part of our study today, I want to take a couple minutes to do something I said we do last week, and that's to walk through how the big book of Jeremiah unfolds. So last week, for example, I suggested that Jeremiah chapter 2 to 24 is the first big section in the book. And I just want to explain a little bit more of that. I'm going to put something up on the PowerPoint about this so you can follow along. So this just be a basic outline of the book. I've been trying to get this in my head for like two years. I, I feel pretty good about this, about this now. Okay, so basically chapter one, we went through pretty carefully, right? That is the introduction to the book, not surprising. It's about the call and commission of Jeremiah. Okay, we, we spent time in that. <clears throat> God had called him from birth, revealed himself to him when he was a young man, <clears throat> and commissioned him to be his prophet to the nations. Okay, then, for the next 23 chapters, okay, I think we get more or less a written account of what Jeremiah preached and did for his first 23 years of ministry. Okay? So this is the early preaching of Jeremiah. Now, that's not the case for every single verse in those 23 chapters. Like, if you look right at the end, it does move forward a little bit in time. But this is what's going on as a whole in those 23 chapters. And I want to show you this, because say, how do you, like, why do you think that? How do you get that idea that those 23 chapters are about his first 23 years? So look with me at Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. So, so right after chapter 24. So look at chapter 25. And look at verse 1. It says, the word, Jeremiah 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And what does he say? For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken persistently to you, but you haven't listened. Okay. <clears throat> now, did you notice when that scene takes place? Did you catch the years? He says it's during the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. That's a king in Judah, like where he lives. Okay. That's nice to know. But what's more important is actually the other thing he said. In the ESV, it's in parentheses. Okay. It's far more important in history that this happened to also be the first year of which king? The greatest king in all the world at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. And what does Jeremiah say? For 23 years, I've been speaking to you, but you haven't listened. And you have to remember, he's going to minister for 40 years. So his ministry could be divided into two parts. The first 23 years 
and the last 17 years, or you could think of it in another way. You could say you have the years before Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon and then the years while he was the king of Babylon. Okay, so, so I'm suggesting primarily Jeremiah's first 23 years. Now I want to point you to just two more verses about this, okay? Try to stick with me here. So look at Jeremiah chapter 36. Okay, so go to Jeremiah chapter 36, and we'll look at two verses here. Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 1. See if this sounds familiar. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Sound familiar? Same year. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. Notice that? It's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which is also the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar. And what does the Lord tell Jeremiah to do? Get a scroll, and I want you to write down all the stuff you have been preaching for the last 23 years. Okay? Do you know where you find those words? I think those are the first 24 chapters, okay, are primarily those words that he had been preaching for the last 23 years. This is, I think, the easiest way to remember the book. It is the first, those 23 chapters are about what he said and what he did during the first 23 years of ministry. And I'd put it in that order. It's what he said and a little bit of what he did. In other words, if you read these chapters on your own, maybe you've been doing this, what you'll find is that in that part of the book, it's mostly preaching with some stories about what what he did, okay? Then the next section is almost entirely from that date on, from the first year of Nebuchadnezzar to the end of Jeremiah's life until the day, at least until the day, when Jerusalem fell and its temple was burned to the ground. That's Jeremiah 25 to 45. It's the story of Jeremiah's life as Nebuchadnezzar reigned and began to take over the world and take over his own country. Okay? Or, to put this another way, it's the written account of what Jeremiah did and what he preached. And I'd put it in that order. If you read those chapters, it's mostly, okay, seven, last 17 years, it's mostly what he did and a little bit of what he preached. So you see the difference? So the first part of the book, it's mostly what he preached and a little bit of what he did. And then in the next part, it's mostly what he did and what people did to him and a little bit of what he preached. And then the book comes to its end, 46 to 51, is the word of the Lord about the nations. And I'll show you one verse of that. Look at Jeremiah chapter 46 and look at the first verse. So Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 1. What does it say? The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet about the nations. Okay? And for the next many chapters, that's what happens. One nation after another. You read the book, that's exactly what happens in those chapters. And then Jeremiah 52 is the conclusion to the book. 
where it retells the story of the fall of Jerusalem, and it actually goes a little further to, to give you a glimpse of what happened after Jeremiah died. Somebody else wrote Jeremiah 52, because it actually goes further than the life of Jeremiah, 37 years into the exile, to tell you what's happening at that point in the exile. Okay? Now, I hope that that is helpful for you, just to have something as you, because I, I want you not just to hear the sermons and understand like why I'm breaking them down the way I am, but also to be able to read the books. I hope that's something that'll help, uh, that'll help you to take up the book and read it on your own. Now, for the rest of today's sermon, I want to return to this big theme that Babylon is coming, which we looked at last week, and I just want to develop it in three ways. Okay, Perhaps you could think of it this way. Jeremiah's message, big message, Babylon is coming, but this week, I want to focus on three things he says to help his people understand what's going on and to know what they're supposed to do about it. Okay? So we'll talk about three claims that Jeremiah makes about Babylon's invasion. Okay? And I want to think about them together today. Okay? The first claim that Jeremiah makes is about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And what is Jeremiah's view of Nebuchadnezzar? He claims that Nebuchadnezzar is God's what? Servant. Okay. Now, to us, that might not sound like super controversial, but in, in Jeremiah's day, this would have been very hard to swallow. After all, Nebuchadnezzar was not a good guy, especially at the beginning of his reign. Because you might think, well, don't we read something in the book of Daniel and he kind of like has some changes? <laughs> he does. But on the whole, he was a ruthless, brutal king. And so for him to be called God's servant would have been scandalous in Jeremiah's day. So I first want you to see that he actually does call him that. Okay, So I want you to see where this is. So for one example of this, look at Jeremiah 25. Okay, we were just there. So go back to Jeremiah chapter 25. This is where it says in the first verses of Jeremiah 25 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And God says something about Nebuchadnezzar at the very beginning of his reign. This is Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8. Therefore, 25.8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. See that? Nebuchadnezzar, God says, that's my servant. Now, jump over two chapters to chapter 27. And this time, look at verse 6, chapter 27, verse 6. And again, look at how God is describing what he is doing. 27.6. God says, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. And by the way, this is said elsewhere in the book as well, but... But we won't turn, turn there. The point, I hope, is clear enough. 
three times in the book, God specifically calls Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And just to highlight how controversial this would be, do you know who else is called God's servant in the book of Jeremiah? As a group, like in the plural, servants, that, that's usually how, or that's one of the ways they talk about the prophets, like the true prophets. These are God's servants. But in the singular, to call somebody God's servant, do you know who else is called God's servant in the book? Two, two, two things, two people. One, Israel. Israel is called God's servant a few times in the book. And two, David. David, my servant. Okay? But what's happening now? God is raising up a foreign king, his servant, to humble Israel and the Davidic family. Okay? This would have been extremely controversial. Okay? That's claim number one. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. Now, number two, <clears throat> which is very related. Jeremiah his claim is that Babylon's invasion is God's judgment. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I want to think about it some more. So you're, I think you're in chapter 27. <clears throat> so just look at verse 5 this time. Look at how God talks about this. Jeremiah 27, 5. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on it, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Okay, do you see what God is claiming? He is saying that what is happening in Judah and around Judah is all his doing. What is happening on the world stage is an act of God himself. Because you, you think about it, from the human point of view, Babylon is on the move, and you could explain all that. But from God's point of view, this is his own doing. God is on the move. And, and you think about what it said in those verses. God says, it is I who by my great power, my outstretched arm, made the earth, and I give it to whomever I want to give it to. And I've decided to give it to Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Now, let's look over at one other place on this, where you see nothing is happening by chance or mere coincidence. Look at Jeremiah chapter 21. This one is maybe even harder for the people to hear. Jeremiah chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon, against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched arm and strong arm. Now, have you ever heard that language before? God stretching, saying, I will stretch out my arm. Like This is what God did at the exodus to Egypt for his people. And what's God saying here? 
I'm going to stretch out my arm against you. Those weapons that are in your hand, that you th- I'm going to turn them back on yourself. And verse 6, and I will strike down the inhabitants of this city. See, on the one hand, there is a human explanation <clears throat> for what happens to Judah. There were political forces at work. There were military advantages, disadvantages. But at the end of the day, what God is claiming is that none of those things can explain why Judah's going to fall. This is coming at God's direction. The judgment is God's doing. Or, as I said, the second claim, Babylon's invasion is God's judgment on the people. Now for the third claim. This is the last one, okay? Which in Jeremiah's day, this one I focus on, this would have been the hardest, I think, for them to hear. Claim number three, Jeremiah says, there's only one possible way to escape. And nobody is going to like it. Okay. So try to think of it this way. Imagine that we were living in Jeremiah's day. But not just that. Imagine that we were like so many of the people in his day who heard him for 20 years and never listened. That's what we probably would have done. We might like to put ourselves as like his one friend or something in the story, but we probably would have been like almost everybody who listened to him for 20 years and never, never did anything about it. He had been pleading with us to repent, to turn away from our false gods, to cry out to God for mercy, and we mocked him. He became the joke in our city. That maybe sounds like some of our own life stories as you look back on your own life. Okay, but then imagine that now Babylon's army is closing in. You've been hearing reports of other nations falling and of every city around you falling. And now you can hear them right outside the city. Nobody's laughing anymore at Jeremiah. Those days are long gone. In fact, we now know for sure that he was right and we were wrong. And with that, there comes this bitter realization that our sin is going to cost us this city. And that temple that we love and our houses and our families, and it's probably going to cost us our lives. Then imagine that in that moment of desperation, we finally decided to go to Jeremiah one more time and to ask him if there's anything we can do. Is it too late? Is there any hope for us? What do you think Jeremiah's answer would have been? This this would have been his answer. There is a way to escape, but there's only one, and you will not like it. Okay. What is that way? Okay, you're probably still in Jeremiah 21. So let's hear his answer. Look at verse 8. Jeremiah 21, verse 8. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life 
and the way of death. He who stays in this city will die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans, remember that's the Babylonians, who are besieging you, shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war because I've set my face against this city for harm, not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. He will burn it with fire. There's only one way to escape. You catch it? And by the way, that same answer, we're not going to look at all these texts today, that is given in chapter 27, 38, 42. That is told to the king himself, all the way down to the lowest people in the land, and that very same offer is told to every one of the surrounding nations. There is one and only one way of escape. And what is it? It is to surrender your future your land, your house, your family, your very life to God's servant. It is to do the very last thing you would want to do. It's to get up and walk outside your city, bearing the shame and to surrender. It's to give yourself up to the very person that you know could destroy you. And it's to do that. Why? Simply because you believe the word of the Lord. Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in the city will die, but whoever goes out and surrenders will live. That is a message that most in Jeremiah's day would have called foolishness. Jeremiah, if we give up our lives like that, we will lose them. That's what makes sense. But what is Jeremiah saying? If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you will give up your life because you trust God's promise, you will save it. Now, as we step back, think about this theme that judgment is coming, that Babylon is coming. There are still some unresolved questions I think that we might have. I have some that I hope to talk about later. For example, one question I haven't spent a lot of time on is why this is happening. Like, we've, we've seen some of that, you know, in the different texts, like why is God actually doing this to his people? I plan to look at that in, in future weeks, but, but the main answer to that is that God's judgment falls primarily because of what people do to God. Now, God also cares a lot about how we treat or mistreat other people. But you read Jeremiah, the main reason God's judgment falls is because of what people do to God. A second big question we haven't really addressed yet is the question of, is this right for God to judge in this specific way? What I mean by that is, is it right for God to use an evil king, a terrible kingdom, to judge his people? How can a holy God 
get involved with such sinful people. That's why we read the text in Habakkuk today. Did you notice that like that? That was Habakkuk's problem. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Okay, and you can look at what he said or Jeremiah also has answers for that. But I plan to deal with those things later. There are more questions we could ask. But what I want to close with today is just one big truth, one main application from this study. First, the big truth. Our God that we worship here together is a very big God. Our king is the king of every king. The God of the Bible is the creator of all things and the king of all kings. That is foundational to everything we talked about today. The king of Babylon was unlike anybody we have in the world today. He was the greatest king in the entire world, clearly. Okay? He had absolute power. And God says, he's my servant. The God of Israel is not only the God of Israel. Israel's God is God over every kingdom and every king. And knowing that, but not just knowing it, but resting in that, in his power, is what gives us stability in an unstable world. Unstable politics, unstable world scene, knowing God is king and resting in it is what gives us stability. I think of Psalm 46, a great psalm. It says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Be still and know that I am God and there is no other. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in this earth. And then the psalmist says, the Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Then one main application today. I hope our, our study today has helped you to see the call of Christ on our lives in a, in a new way. Okay? Because his call to us is very similar to the call of Jeremiah, to those who are about to fall under judgment. What did Jeremiah say? He said, there is one and only one way to escape the coming judgment. What is it? It is to surrender all that you have and all that you will be to God's servant. What does Christ say to us? We heard it last week and this week in our two New Testament readings. What does Jesus say? Think about it in light of what Jeremiah said. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. There is one and only one way to escape the coming judgment. It is to surrender all that you have and will be to Jesus. That's what Jesus says. The call of Christ 
is to die to yourself, to go to him, bearing the shame of the cross, and to surrender to him as your new king, to trust him as your perfect savior, and to get behind him. I hope that seeing, thinking about what that looked like in Jeremiah's day, to hear him say, your only hope is to walk outside this city in which you trust and to surrender. That was a foolish message. And I think it's not surprising the New Testament calls the message of the cross foolishness. Christ calling us is to do the thing that we do not want to do. It is to leave everything else behind and to go to him, bearing the shame and to surrender, to trust him because you believe the word of the Lord, his promise that the just will live by faith. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words, these scenes from centuries ago, your word that was spoken, would you take it and would you drive it into our hearts? Would you produce in us a belief, a trust that you are king, that we might find rest? And would you help us specifically to Believe and respond to your promise that if we will go to Jesus and surrender and trust him, we can be saved. Lord, for those of us who, who have put our trust in him, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, I pray that you will take this message and do good things in our hearts for your glory and for the good of this, your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.